0: Hello and welcome to this GCP short and our first produced in collaboration with Seeker, the Captive Insurance Companies Association, who I'm delighted to say are a friend of the podcast for 2022. Over the next 20 minutes, I will be joined by three very experienced captive consultants, particularly in the American market, to discuss how to choose a captive domicile always a very important decision for a new captive owner. Jason Flaxbeard of Brown and Brown and Marie Toll from Highland, and Gary Osborne of Risk Partners will be debating what factors go into choosing a domicile for your captive, how some of the priorities have changed and might change between organisations and the impact of new regulations and legislation both in the US and and abroad and we begin with Anne-Marie explaining at what stage the domicile discussion is raised when a client is setting out on a new captive project.
1: Typically when we're thinking about a feasibility analysis and particularly related to domiciles many times that's the first question a lot of clients will ask Uh, They're keenly interested in travel. Where is it going to be domiciled? How much is it going to cost me? And what do I need to do from an operational perspective? So typically, you know, it's right out of the gate when you're thinking about it, and people are interested in that aspect because it's exotic, it's sexy to them, thinking about setting up a new captive, a new entity in their org chart, potentially, and where can that lead them to? So it's, in my opinion, fairly early on in the process that you need to start to address some of those strategic, operational, and financial aspects of being in a domicile.
2: I'm pretty much in agreement except that often can move a little bit as you start talking about the structure if it's fronted it changes the equation pretty quickly because you're almost starting with home state in most situations, but when you start talking, are we going to be fronted, how's the program structured, risk retention group, things like that, that can change the conversation. I mean, I've started with the captives, I thought we were going to be in Vermont and we ended in Cayman. So it's just all those kinds of conversations vary and it's early, but that once you get into the structure, that can make a big change too. Absolutely, I, I, I've seen captives start
3: exactly like, like you said there, Gary, they, they're in one place and they go to another. One of the issues that I'm seeing a lot more is local director requirements. So, do you need to have a local director? Do we know anybody in the local director uh, ship uh, space that we could, that we can use? Or uh, I've had this as well. I've had a client with a house in Nevada that, uh, so the, the captains ended up from Vermont going to going to Nevada because they didn't want to, you know, uh, they, they they wanted to be close to this guy's home and they can make all the decisions in state as well. So it's there's plenty of options
0: yeah and i guess those dynamics change all the time don't they in terms of local regulations might change one domicile that used to not need to have local directors decide it does need to have local directors so i guess you as consultants obviously need to always make sure that you're on top of kind of the profile of of what each domicile requires gary what is the starting point of that assessment though so we said about how early when it might happen but what is the starting point of the assessment regarding the domicile are there times when it's very very obvious what the domicile should be right from the beginning uh, and other, other times where it, it literally could be anywhere
2: in these day and age normally you start with looking at where their are headquartered and go is their home state a viable option um, and that's where you'll start. You'll start saying, hey, this one's headquartered in, just an example, Atlanta. Um, and you say, Georgia's going to be on the equation. We're going to talk about Georgia along with some others. And But then they say, well, we're going to front it. And you can say, OK, now we don't have that home state problem, because with it's fronted, we're pretty much, it opens up the universe. Um, and so that's you start with almost, the first question almost is home state or close, somewhere close by. And then it migrates as you figure out, again, as I said, are we fronting this? What's the collateral? The other components that can make a big difference in the domicile. I mean, the offshore collateral relief can make a massive difference. So I, mean, I had one. And then also things like not-for-profit status can make a difference. If they're trying to do a little bit of for-profit business and a not-for-profit, you can still end up offshore. Um, so these sort of things are just, you start with home state and then you might migrate as the as the business plan develops.
3: Yeah, it was interesting. Originally, it used to be before two thousand and ten, before the Dodd Frank Act came out. It was Hawaii, Vermont, you know, Bermuda, Cayman, and now the first question we ask is where are your home, where's your home state for self procurement tax re- reasons. And it's cha- the self procurement tax has changed the conversation on domicile quite a bit.
1: It certainly has. And then I think to your point, Jason, you made earlier, sometimes the owner of the organization or one of the board members has a house in Cayman Islands and that's the ultimate goal because they want to all travel down there and that's not necessarily the optimal answer to your point you really got to look at all the different statistics and then if you're dealing with an international organization and thinking about For instance, if somebody's in Spain, you know, it's a little bit different than the home state advantage here in the United States. So keeping it from a global perspective of where are we actually doing business around the world and what does that mean? You know, why would you domicile here in the United States if you don't actually have any business here in the United States because you don't want to have that worldwide taxation.
0: Going back to what I said before about the kind of landscape constantly changing, and you touched on it there, Gary, about the kind of self-procurement tax. Presumably, 20 years ago, it wasn't by default that you start with the question, what's your home state? That's something which is last 10 or so years has, has become far more relevant.
2: Absolutely. I mean, 20 years ago, there wasn't. There was probably only six places you could do it. I mean, I'm certainly in South Carolina came on about 20 years ago, and it was really only, about the third or fourth active U.S. state. And 2001 to 10, all of a sudden, they jumped And then I think it was the 2008 economic crisis probably brought this self-procurement tax because people suddenly suddenly went, oh maybe I can go pick up a few extra points by beating on these captives. So that's what my recollection is about 2008 and then 2010 kind of made it even worse. Um, And so it is a different situation and it's a little unfortunate with some of the more Smaller captive domiciles that have a lot of good reputation. Is that they don't have that many home businesses. So, but they're still doing a good job, and it's still not a guarantee because some home states still, California doesn't have a captive law. We've yeah. got this problem yeah. with Washington and others. So, it's not always the home state doesn't always work you sometimes have to go to that second part of the home state where is there more physical people employed or different questions yeah and, and well, as you know the uh, the self-procurement tax is on a policy by policy basis so
3: a lot of our clients you know, do the bifurcation of policies by state uh, to, to have an in-state and an out-of-state policy which is which, which is very advantageous and it defines home state as well it helps with the definition of home state Um, uh, but uh, I I will say that the the good thing is that we we face is I know that when we get an opportunity here we probably all know what the the right answer is within the first 10 minutes of chatting with a client and it's not usually where they want to go on vacation. It's, it's, it's right, it's the home state, or we think that uh, it's going to be fronted, so maybe a domicile that doesn't charge premium tax on reinsurance is, is going to be the right one to go, or offshore. Uh, but by and large, most most jurisdictions around the US and, and worldwide have really good laws, have really good jurisdictional um, regulators, and are, are very welcoming to to our business. So you know, we we, we, we can't go wrong. If we get this right, the, the client has, has a great opportunity to, to, to grow their business.
0: You say there that, often it's the case that um, it's it's pretty obvious maybe within 10 minutes that what the optimal choice might be. Um, Is it though the case that you could be going through the whole visibility study process and there are like numerous very good options like there there isn't just one obvious one there are four or five which could all be perfectly good for the strategy they're they're looking for
3: yeah that's right if you look at gary's uh, point there on the reinsurance if, if, if you've got a frontier program you could in theory put it anywhere so what then becomes more important is how much capital do i need to start this how many other like-minded captives are in the jurisdiction that I'm going to. Do we have a uh, uh, you know a, a good set of service providers in that domicile? Do I need to go outside? What are the local director requirements? There's a bunch of other things that come in straight afterwards. But when we have a fronted program, it does open up quite a few and. Uh, I'm afraid we we do end up conversations about you know do you want to go to to Hawaii for your vacation and uh, that that used to be the the, the key though it does circle yeah. back
1: to that sometimes yeah. Yeah. when you know all things else being neutral that you end up okay what is going to be easiest for travel for our board members what we're looking at for hosting meetings and transacting business in that circumstance so I think you know we have times when we're recommending like the top 3 because there isn't a big majority of a difference and so you evaluate and determine as stakeholders in the organization as they move forward what is going to be optimal.
0: Other circumstances you mentioned about obviously front-team programs and the different um, tax treatment on, on reinsurance arrangements obviously collateral regulations change obviously within the EU you've got solvents two, which is very burdensome uh, regulation i think it's very fair to say that uh, compared to say the offshores of guernsey barbuda which don't have those kind of capital requirements that, that the eu does but there are other are there other circumstances that can really drive um, maybe in terms of location if you're in europe is it better to be in europe if you're an american company is it better to be in america is it is it that simple or you know, how much does geography kind of play a role?
3: Geography plays a big role and uh, some of the big companies that all three of us here work with um, have a lot of times have multiple captives just for that reason. They'll have a captive in in a location which is more advantageous from a capital perspective. They'll have a U.S. captive to write U.S. Dom- domicile business. And they may even have a, a European captive for solvency two reasons. Uh, they they tend, therefore, to, to manage their capital through reinsurance transactions and and seed business to the locations that are most advantageous from a
2: capital perspective. But the, um, uh, the, 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 the big guys have multiples. There's one I uh, just like that. We had one where they actually formed a branch. They had a captive from one of the Caribbean islands, and they didn't want to move it back to their home state, but they formed a branch in the home state so they could deal with the self-procurement tax by just getting the captive rate. They were reinsuring 100% of, from their branch in the state to the Cayman captive, but it sort of took that issue off the table and allowed them to keep using their Cayman rules, which they were used to and more comfortable than dealing with a the state they didn't really necessarily want to have totally running their affairs. And, and that's what happened with TRIA as well and uh, employee benefits, Vermont set up the branch law
3: that allowed you to have a, a, an onshore branch of an offshore uh, jurisdiction. Hawaii did the same thing. And uh, so the the, the the regulators, as I pointed out earlier, are very keen to work with, with, with clients to, to solve problems and, and cre- create access. And uh, they've done a terrific job.
0: Yeah, so just to clarify that further. So what you're saying is obviously TRIA, you can only access TRIA if you are a US domicile captive with employee benefits. You can only write ERISA benefits if you are a US captive. So there's certain... And things like that which are going to influence the decision whether it's your captive has been on shore or whether you have a branch and you're going to put that branch from an offshore captive onshore to do to do that business amory we, we have touched on this a little bit i think already but how much then and part of it obviously is the self procurement tax issue, but how much has the proliferation of new captive domiciles, particularly onshore in the US, complicated or or added more numbers to those decisions or more options to those decisions on domiciles or or are those increased options just generally welcomed?
1: I, I think it depends. Part of it going back to what Gary mentioned with that home state. When you're evaluating and looking at an organization, are they even in one of those newer states? Or is it a California situation where they don't have that legislation? Where does it financially make sense for them to operate out of? I think it's nice to have options, in my opinion. I don't think we need 38 options here in the United States, personally. But I know there are complicating factors as a re- result of self-procurement tax and you know how people take their view or stance on it. But I I think from the perspective of having the options available, in my opinion, you can still narrow them down very quickly. When you look at, okay, if I'm a not-for-profit organization and I'm looking to really just write my liability coverage and my workers' compensation, do I need to be in Indiana, for instance, who doesn't have captive legislation, or should I be in Vermont, or should I be in Cayman Islands? It's where am I most comfortable with the type of risk that others are doing that are not-for-profit? Do I want to actually go to Montana, where they might not be as familiar, than another domicile that is familiar? So it's comparing those types of things that I think are important. It's nice to have options, but I think at the end of the day, at some point, those are probably going to be narrowed down in the next 10 years.
0: I think it's fair to say
2: there already are lots of good options. There is, and there's only one thing I think we hadn't touched on that I would probably say also comes is the ownership of the captive. Because you talked about foreign influences. So sometimes the offshore jurisdictions come in because it might be Chinese money or European money. Or God forbid, Russian money. <laughs> I haven't seen that recently, thank goodness. But if you've got some different orn- the ownership, maybe you sometimes you can't just ask which company we're looking at. Where's this money going to flow to? Can also be involved. So that's the one thing we hadn't really touched on. So sometimes I've ended up in an offshore jurisdiction. We've used Malta, for instance, because some of the money was eventually going to flow back to a European parent. And so there's, those considerations can come up, and you don't necessarily get that immediately unless you sort of, you know the company when you go in and you've done your homework. You might say, well, "Wait a minute, there's a there's a German money behind this somewhere." So you got to pay. A attention to that as well. It's the one factor that can complicate it. You might end up then with a US captive proceeding to Bermuda or Malta or something like that. So we've seen that. That's a little bit of what you touched upon. Yeah, there used to be uh, some double taxation agreements as well.
3: I think Barbados used to have one with Canada, and I think Malta had one with Germany, and still may actually. I'm not quite sure, but uh, that, that, that flows in as well. But I think it's fair to say when each one of us does a domicile selection spreadsheet... The number of lines that we have in the spreadsheet are more than the, the the five that we used to have. It's more like thirty-five or forty, and the ranking criteria you know, varies between you know, di- different uh, different lines. But it's it's um, it's not a foregone conclusion anymore, unfortunately, unless home state is, is absolutely clear.
0: I guess I mean you've you've all mentioned in various contexts, whether it's home state or we haven't even mentioned, you know, BEPS or BEAT, for example, when you're talking about international domiciles, we've mentioned tax a few times. I guess is it important to emphasize that you guys as captive managers aren't tax advisors, so you you'd also expect those clients to be having conversations with Tax oh, multiple
3: grins around the table now. Uh, thank you, Richard. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any conversation I, I've ever had that doesn't end with I'm not a tax advisor and I don't give tax advice. Um, it happens all the time. But uh, the tax position with a tax advisor is is, key, is a key part of this as well. I know that uh, there's, there's a move to be to have a global minimum tax as well. So that will affect domicile choice as well at some point. Um, and it'll affect the costs of running a captive as well uh, if your service provider is offshore then they're going to be charging 15 percent extra because they're they're paying a 15 percent tax uh, that that's going to factor in and um, it's a it, uh tax is, is, is an integral part of the selection process for sure.
1: Correct we recently were dealing with something too and sometimes it can change the domicile you know when we go through a domicile analysis we encourage discussions with tax advisors early on because you don't want to get to the end of the feasibility study you present options and then all of a sudden you go down the path with their tax and legal and they say whoa wait a second we're looking at you know some global planning here and this doesn't make sense so you really want to involve those early on but we do caveat it as Jason mentioned all the time, we are not tax advisors. We do not give tax advice, and they need to be cognizant of this.
3: I think that's on my business card as well. You know, yes,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you, you talk about that—you know, the potential potential minimum tax rate coming in. It looks like it probably will come in. I think there's obviously some nuances still to work out exactly who it affects, and there's some. I think we're hopeful, actually, it might not impact as many captives as we think it might. But I guess that just highlights the fact that the the landscape is always changing. So I think one thing we weren't going to originally talk about, but I'm going to chuck it in there, is we're talking about this mainly in the context of a new captive being formed. Where are you going to put it? I guess the other next part of this this discussion is existing captives and reviewing their captive location, if circumstances change, maybe MA activity, maybe the, the parent actually ends up moving state, maybe it could be to do with um, tax legislation changing. How often do you, are you having those, let's not get into in much detail now, but how often do you have that conversation with existing clients who are looking to either regularly review or just do kind of a five-year, 10-year review of if they're in the right place?
1: Right. I think that's important from a strategic perspective. So if you have an existing captive and has been around for a, quite some time, I personally think every three to five years, you should step back and do a strategic review of your captive, which would include a domicile analysis. Look at your lines of coverage. Look at your business plan. Are you aligned and are your goals and objectives what you still want them to be? And one of those is domicile. Have you migrated your operations or you acquired a new plant in China? Do you have more of your risk there? Do you have more of your risk in Europe or or the United States or Australia? So that, I think, is very important as you think about strategically. Are we re- in the right domicile, or do we need to have a second or a third captive, as Gary mentioned?
2: I agree with that, but I've also seen it quite a bit with the merger and acquisition problem. You suddenly, I've got a new client, and I find they've actually got five captives. And they, they've got no idea what to do with them. So we've all heard all these legacy presentations, but as often we're running into, can we you get into discussions? And it, actually, one of them had five captives. We ended up with one new one and all five were rolled into it because it went to a different location. It went to their home state and all the five that they'd sort of picked up by mergers and acquisitions and not really paying attention we're all closed down into the new one mm. oh, yeah, so that's a good idea and the other thing to mention is you know, when, when states
3: come out with new laws when te- Texas had their law that was implemented a lot of, a lot of uh, companies migrated back to home state Georgia the same way and uh, I think a lot of that happens if California ever has a captive law I'm sure we'll see quite a bit of movement inside the captive world
0: yeah I mean we started at the very beginning on kind of a what stage is the captive feasibility and formation formation process started in terms of the final decision being made does that happen does the final decision actually happen quite early in the process in terms of once you've done the feasibility once they've gone ahead do they then start do they do a, a round robin interview of different regulators i mean i sometimes do see that happening at i've seen i think as one of your clients has been meeting various regulators uh, today and i've you know as a someone who's curious i've kind of you know, looked over and see who, who are they thinking about um how thorough and how much does it vary how thorough clients are in doing their own due diligence? Obviously, you've got your advice and you're, you're saying we think this is probably the best one. But how much does it vary that the, the, the client really wants to take an ultimate lead in making that final decision?
1: Well, what I've seen many times when we're forming group captives, I highly recommend that they speak to at least three different regulators um, that we've narrowed it down to. Because I think that's an important part, particularly when you have a task force or committee that's eventually becoming the board of directors, I think it's prudent for them to do their due diligence and they can report back to their constituents and members. We've done our due diligence. We actually talked to the regulators sat down and we feel comfortable with Bermuda or Cayman or Vermont or whomever ends up selecting. And then it varies. We have some companies that you know, you, you do the domicile analysis and they take your top recommendation. And then we have others that do want to do the further due diligence and sit down with the regulators or a video call as we've all experienced during the pandemic and meet and build a rapport that way.
2: It can also depend on, do you... If it's an aggressive plan or a more creative plan, I'm trying to think the right terms. Sometimes you're going, to, you may get some pushback from some domicile, so you almost have, you sometimes have a contingency plan. Um, I mean, because sometimes you know you're possibly breaking new ground. Not every regulator is going to have a comfort level. You, you try to suggest perhaps here's ones that we think will be more receptive to this, but you do have to have a backup plan.
0: Can a can a client ever be spooked, or even you be spooked by you think you have come out of a cunning plan? You know, absolutely great risk financing program, but. The, your number one choice of domicile actually goes, no, it doesn't work here. And I mean, Gary, you've been around the block a few times. I'm sure you presented some interesting ideas to people. I'm sure you always have confidence that it does pass the muster, but does that sometimes put a question mark in your mind if a capital regulator goes, actually, no, I don't think you can do this here.
2: Most of the time, it's no. Let's go to Plan B, um, because you know you're doing something different. You know, you to And some people's comfort levels are just different. I mean, we've all got the stories of legendary regulators that said, if it's got wheels on it, we don't want to touch it, or things like that. So it's just sometimes you know that some domiciles are likely to be a little more difficult. And um, but you're trying not. You don't want to necessarily what I call domicile shop, but you do have a contingency plan because you just know you're trying something new and like agency captives so I can promise you, 20 years ago, if you raised that in Vermont, you'd you'd got marched out the state. But they've changed. So you. Just just those are the sort of things you just have to sort of keep in mind so it's a contingency plan is my way to I don't think I've really had one that is they were put off after one regular said let's not try another I mean I've certainly had plenty that have never gone but usually we're going to try at least two before we say this is not going to work.
0: Does it ever happen that you've you've done a feasibility study uh, you know what you want to put in the captive and you've started assessing your options and it's just not going to work in one domicile. We hear about corporates having multiple captives, and that's often something they've inherited over time, or the shadows change. But at day one of having zero captives, can a company go to having two
2: captives in different domiciles? Absolutely, it comes down to sometimes a risk retention group might be the right answer for liability lines, where you need to do something else for the property and casualty. Um, or a cell might make work sense to have in one small location for something that had to be carved off just from the other. So. You, you never know where you're going to end up. I mean, but it's absolutely come up more oftenly. Sometimes multiple cells. Sometimes they do it in cells now rather than just having. I've seen a lot more companies now is that companies will form a cell captive so they can put three or four programs in different cells. Yeah, and, and branches too. And branches. But yes, we've we done projects where I've put a captive onshore and one offshore. I and mean, we thought we were only going to be onshore to start with. But we found an ownership trigger that made it sense to do both.
1: Right, and especially from an ownership perspective, if you have major corporations, then you have potentially... Large family history owners with family offices potentially, so you're you're dealing with different constituents within the same organization and separating that risk. To your point, I think in a sponsored cell facility that they establish for themselves and segregating it or having multiple captives in different jurisdictions makes a tremendous amount of sense.
3: Yeah, and if you're going to get into the ILS market, you, you want something in Bermuda or, or or offshore for sure, and so you can attract more investment in in the cell. So there's. There's different reasons for different jurisdictions, for sure, and you're absolutely right, Gary. You know
0: why, why stop at one? Well, thank you to Jason Flatsbeard, Amory Toll and Gary Osborne for a great debate on how to choose a captive domicile. It is certainly a conversation that is evolving all the time, so it is invaluable to have such experienced consultants on hand to guide you through the selection process. If you would like more information on our guests, then do visit the GlobalCaptivePodcast.com website. And for more information on Seeker, a link to their website is in the episode show notes as well in the meantime stay safe stay well and see you next time captives